The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. So he faked his own death. This just keeps getting better. No, it doesn't. Not with what this man is capable of. Blakely designed math-based predictive models for us, models to help create geopolitical change. What do you mean by that? The agency would bring him a problem. How can we prevent country A from getting the bomb or cause regime change in country B? Blakely found solutions using what he called linchpin theory. His approach was to find a small event that could trigger a large event. Like the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand causing World War I. Exactly. He once said that you only had to knock over one domino, but if it was the right domino, the rest would fall. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, June the 2nd, 2022. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. As a Canadian, I find myself, I'm afraid to say, rather ashamed of Canada, which is today engaged in igniting a globalist war justified for the purpose of causing a regime change in Russia. Our guest today, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Western University, Salim Mansour, joined Robert to discuss Canada's complicity in this insane effort back on May 24th, from which we draw today's highlights. And of course, you can hear the entirety of that discussion by checking out our various social media links and platforms online. As you're about to hear, the current conflict in Ukraine clearly demonstrates that Canada does not have a foreign policy which benefits Canadians, and rather Canada is acting in the globalist interests of the United Nations. And in a comment that Salim shared with Robert after their interview ended, Salim pointed out that the only two wars in which Canada did not join the U.S. in battle, Vietnam and the Second Gulf War, which were mentioned by Robert, but it had been because those actions were not sanctioned by the United Nations. Now today you'll be hearing Salim explain how Canada has been living in a globalist fog which prevents it from asserting its own best interests in foreign affairs and from having a Canada-first foreign policy. Worse, as a post-national state without a core identity, as Justin Trudeau has described the country, it has no concept of what its national interests even are. And this begs a much greater question, one that I really hadn't considered until I grasped the entire context of the history that was laid out by Salim. You know, perhaps we've been looking at the whole picture of Canada's nationhood in a completely false framework. And it got me to thinking. Many Canadians are convinced that Canada is a nation in its death throes. And as we heard on the show last week, talk of the country splitting up into separate regions might suggest that very possibility. But hold on a minute. Maybe we've been looking at this backwards. And so let me leave you with these questions in mind for which I'm not even sure if I have an answer. Is Canada a nation in its death throes or is it a nation still on the pains of a long drawn out birth process? Is Canada a nation that has yet to fully emerge from its political womb? Or is it a dying nation about to suffer a similar fate now being experienced by Ukraine? 
as a buffer zone between two superpowers. What do you think? It all gets underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. I'm joined by our regular guest, Professor Salim Mansur of Western University, to discuss a Canada-first policy with regards to our current situation with the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. Good day, Salim. How are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Okay, so just give me a moment here, because these are my thoughts on the whole problem. To date, Canada's forward policy with regards to war has always been as a follower a follower of Mother Britain, a follower of the United States, and a follower of the United Nations. With rare exceptions, and those being the war in Vietnam and the Iraq war after 9-11, Canada acts as a lapdog to larger nations and multinational organizations who either do not share the same values as Canadians, and the United Nations would fit this category, or the national interests of one nation do not align with the national interests of Canada. Ottawa's current attitude toward the conflict in the Ukraine is no different than its involvement in all other conflicts with one notable exception. While in other wars and conflicts, Canada professed a reluctancy to throw itself into the fray or expressed a desire for a negotiated peace, the Russo-Ukrainian conflict has brought out a belligerent jingoism from Canada. I'd never seen the like, and it's from our current gang of rulers. The language coming from Ottawa is not one of reluctancy to go to war, nor a call for discussion and negotiation. It's a saber-rattling language of rabid dogs just itching to join the fight against Russia. If Ottawa was not in the company of warmongers like Brussels or Biden's Washington or Johnson's London, then Trudeau Singh's talk would be like a blustering chihuahua yapping at a beer. It's quite comical. In my estimation, There are three conditions to be met before a a free nation, quasi-free nation, engages in war. Number one, their military must be made up of volunteers. Number two, we must have the moral high ground. In other words, a freer nation has every right, morally, to invade a dictatorship. But number three, it must be in the national interests of the nation. Canada meets the first two conditions, although given recent action by Trudeau Singh's government, I would say only barely are we a a freer nation. The third condition is not met in my estimation. There is no reason as a matter of national interest to risk Canada going to war with Russia. And that's what would happen if we crossed over into the Ukraine with weapons or military or even the funding of the Ukrainian military could be seen by Russia as a hostile act of war. There's no strategic importance of Ukraine to Canada, and there's no Canadian military ally under threat currently from Russia. And I have to remind people that Ukraine is not an ally militarily of Canada. It is not part of NATO. Any war we have with Russia will most certainly be destructive to Canada's infrastructure, its treasury, 
and its people's lives. We've no business involving ourselves in this conflict, and I think that the belligerent, jingoistic, saber-rattling talk coming from Singh and Trudeau and all the rest of the, the Western leaders, mostly from the Anglosphere in Europe, very little from the rest of the world, it just has to stop. What are your thoughts, Celine? Well, in, in the broader sense, you are asking the question, do we, Canada, have a foreign policy doctrine or have we ever had a foreign policy doctrine that we have tried to stick to? You have laid out that the practice rather than a foreign policy doctrine which would mean that there's a consensus in the Canadian public and the Canadian population and that the input of the public is taken seriously just as much as the public is taken seriously by the ruling class to get them into that consensus and that understanding that this is Canada's foreign policy. Historically, I, I can lay out a number of pointers in this issue and, and I will do so by taking our mother country, that is Britain, and its foreign policy doctrine, and then, of course, the United States as our principal ally, or we, in effect, have become a principal vassal state of the United States. And that, too, I would like to elaborate. You also pointed out that in the past, uh, we have followed Britain, which is the mother country that I'm talking about, and then subsequently, we have followed the United States going into any conflict situation. I mean, a foreign policy ultimately is about war and peace issue. That's the very foundation of the UN Charter, the opening preamble. The UN is charged with trying to maintain peace in a world in which two horrendous world wars were fought, one ending in a nuclear bomb, with nuclear bomb, the atom bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, the question then emerges, and, and you have, in a sense, laid it down, and that becomes now very critical in the context of what is happening in Ukraine, which in effect, as we know from public records and statement made by the Biden administration, President Biden, his Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, his Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, that this is a war uh, in Ukraine, which in effect is a proxy war of NATO against Russia. And in no uncertain term, President Biden in Warsaw, in the beginning of March, when he went to Warsaw after a NATO conference, basically said, Putin cannot stay. Oh my God, Putin has to go. In other words, it's a regime change. And only about four, five weeks ago, Lloyd Austin said that America's policy in Ukraine is, and let me quote him, he said, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do things that it has done in invading Ukraine. If you parse those words, this whole idea that NATO was a defense alliance when it was founded in 1949 and Canada joined it in 1949, that after the end of the Cold War, which was the basis, the reason, the pretext of the establishment of NATO, that after the end of the Cold War in 1991, 
NATO has gradually become not a defensive alliance, but actually, you know, an offensive platform for the member state to engage in pushing an agenda, which now we can identify clearly as a globalist agenda, the liberal rule-based order that is going to be dictated by NATO, which principally means the United States and the rest of the world has to follow. Rule-based order as opposed to international law in terms of the United Nations Charter, which every member state in the world has signed on to become a member. But at its foundation, there was something like 40 plus states, and one of them was the Soviet Union. And, and the United Nations Charter, when you examine it, is very clear that it was about a multipolar world, that the actual power on the question of war and peace resided not in the United Nations membership at large, but it resided with the Security Council, and within the Security Council, the five permanent veto members. In other words, not only the victors of World War II, United States, Soviet Union, Britain, France, and at that time, Republic of China, but also a recognition that in the world is multipolar. This is in 1944-45, with the architects of the United Nations. Canada was a player in that, in designing it. And so the five permanent members represents the multipolarity of the world. It is not one world government in that sense of the term or the main issue. And the veto that was given to the five permanent members is about those five permanent members defending their spheres of influence and their national interests. So that anything that goes into a threat or a conflict or a possibility of a war between any of the five member states, the Security Council, the permanent member, the veto member can veto any of that Security Council resolution leading to eventually a war. Okay, so that, that is the context, that is the framework of international policy that was established in 1945. We, in the last 20, 25 years, have been listening to and hearing the dictates of liberal rule-based order. Well, if there can be a liberal rule-based order, Robert, then there can be a Roman Catholic rule-based order. There was a Holy Roman Empire. There can be a Sharia-based international order. There was the Ottoman Empire, you know. Islamism, or the Islamists, they want to recreate the Sharia-based rule order, you know, and impose it within their sphere of influence or take it to the rest of the world, you know. So this rule-based order is an, actually an ideological construct of the liberals, the progressivists in the United States of America, and their major spokesmen or the people who are pushing this hard beginning and we have all the documents now beginning with the 1991 end of the cold war and the project 
for the new American century that was advanced by the neocons in America, and the other ones who are pushing this globalist world order. So that is that is the larger picture. So the relevant question is, what is Canada's foreign policy? Here is Christia Freeland using the uh, budget to make sure you know that Vladimir Putin is a tyrant and a war criminal. Here she is. Canada and our allies have imposed the toughest sanctions ever inflicted on a major economy. Russia has become an economic pariah. But the mutilated people of Bucha shot with their hands tied behind their backs have shown us that is not enough. Putin and his henchmen are war criminals. The world's democracies, including our own, can be safe only once the Russian tyrant and his armies are entirely vanquished. So what about the Pentagon-funded biolabs in Ukraine again? Mm. We're not going to talk about that, are we? There's a big push in the press right now to label Vladimir Putin a war criminal. That's concerning for a whole lot of reasons. Joe Biden or whoever's pulling his puppet strings, leading him around, changing his diaper, is calling for Putin to be put on trial like the Nazis at Nuremberg after World War II. It's not actually going to happen, but we should worry about where all of this is going. Pfizer butt slut sellout globalist neocon Lindsey Graham, the warmongerer, is calling for Putin to actually be targeted for assassination. You have to understand, the purpose of all of this is to lay the groundwork for an intervention in Ukraine. The military-industrial complex is salivating over an intervention. And then, of course, regime change in Russia. If they try that, we don't get regime change, by the way. We'll get a nuclear war instead. But nobody seems to care about any of that. They're being reckless in other ways, too. The Biden administration is screaming from the rooftops that Vladimir Putin might use chemical weapons or other WMDs in Ukraine, and that if he does that, we'll have to retaliate. That should make you shudder, honestly, because Putin has never shown the slightest sign that he plans to use weapons like that. But we saw this exact same playbook in Syria, too, if you'll remember. Bashar Assad was actually winning that war. Literally, the only way that he could screw that up was by getting the U.S. to intervene after Obama had drawn his red line, remember? And then boom, so conveniently, there were two chemical attacks in Syria out of nowhere with no evidence for who committed it. But instantly, our government and our fake lying, complicit criminal media, the propaganda arm for the globalist machine, blamed it on Assad. We didn't have proof of any of that. By the way, actual observers on the ground actually argued that we had no idea who did the attack. Some said that it could have been an accidental explosion, a false flag, or an attack by one Syrian rebel group on another. But that, of course, was immediately thrown out. Why? To try and race us into another war in Syria. And now they're playing that exact same blame game in Ukraine. And the consequences could mean nuclear war. Do you think a false flag chemical attack is too far for our government or for the Ukrainian government, for that matter? 
Think again. But let's pull back even further on this. Are they even telling the truth about the war crimes supposedly being committed by Russia? We certainly have no reason to believe these liars over at Fox or any other network, for that matter. The same people claiming this lied about the causes of the war. They lied about the ghost of Kiev, about a maternity ward. They've lied about everything. They lied about Russia attacking a nuclear power plant. It's just lies everywhere. But here's the truth. If you really go looking for war crimes online, the one with serious evidence are being committed by Ukraine, not by Russia. Ukraine are the ones handing out guns and bombs to random civilians without uniforms, turning everyone into a combatant. That's a war crime. Ukraine are the ones arresting and executing their own people without trials for treason. A war crime. Ukraine are the ones with videos where they gloat about executing or mutilating POWs. A war crime. Ukraine is the country whose politicians have openly called for the targeting of the families of soldiers fighting in Ukraine. A war crime. But this is all before the war. This war didn't just start two months ago. It started eight years ago. For years, units like this Azov Battalion have been committing war crimes against their own people in the Donbass. That's one of the real causes of this war, by the way, along with NATO expansion, as opposed to all of the fake reasons that the press is giving for all of this. When I go in into the website of Ministry of Global Affairs, it used to be the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, the headline is raison d'etre, mandate and role, who we are and what we do. This is uh, the Justin Trudeau government, so for the last seven years since um, 2015. It is all about Canada's role as a member of the United Nation, as a member of NATO. It is all about multilateralism in the context of living up to, participating in it, and providing Canada's support in terms of financial assistance and when and if required military assistance all through the United Nation and through NATO. Well, you hit the nail on his head. We haven't heard of any UN Security Council resolution that was passed on Ukraine. The one motion that was stable on Ukraine soon after the February 24th special military operation that began in the Donbass region that was vetoed by Russia. So there is no UN Security Council resolution on Ukraine. There was a motion in the UN General Assembly on condemning Russia's military operation, quote unquote, invasion of Ukraine. And there, there was a, a split that emerged, a split in which there was a whole number of countries didn't want to take a position. That means they wanted to be neutral or non-aligned. And so there was something like, you know, uh, almost 50 countries that abstained. There were some countries that opposed the motion. And then there were those countries who are politically and economically dependent upon Western powers, particularly the United States and the G7 countries. They supported the motion, but the UN General Assembly motion does not carry any weight on the issue of war and peace. So there you have it. There is no UN Security Council motion. And then NATO. This is the proxy war of NATO, and NATO has been moving on this, NATO and the European Union. Well, NATO as an organization has not invoked 
Article 5 of NATO that calls for a collective action if any one member of NATO has been aggressed upon or invaded. Well, two things immediately arise. There is no Article 5 invocation that has taken place. And moreover, the talk about Ukraine joining NATO, expedited membership into NATO, whether Ukraine should, you know, Kiev should make the application under what consideration and so on and so forth, the discussion that was basically escalating from about December of 2021 till the February 24 operation that Putin launched in Ukraine, were all an escalation of rhetoric about what we in the West have been very concerned about, the incremental and then accelerated expansion of NATO eastward towards the frontiers of former Soviet Union, Russia from the end of 1991, when guarantees were made by the then leaders in the Western world, including President George Herbert Walker Bush, 41, and the French president, the German chancellor, the British prime minister, that NATO would not expand eastward beyond Germany, taking in the Warsaw Pact countries. So back to NATO, there is, there is no, there has been no declaration of anything. And yet, here we are, 10 weeks into the war that has been escalating, uh, both at the military level and in terms of the financial contributions that Ukraine has been demanding and the Americans and others are providing or laundering, whichever may be the view that we take, through Ukraine, the latest being $40 billion that the Americans have voted for Ukraine as an aid package, and many more billion dollars are in the pipeline to other NATO countries, to which can be added the Canadian contribution. And I believe if we add up the numbers, we are already in this period of 10 weeks, according to the figures from the Global Affairs Ministry and the Canadian Ministry of Defense, is rapidly closing into Canadian $2 billion. And the question, therefore, we are asking is, where has there been a discussion about all of this matter in the parliament? Have they discussed it? Have they moved a motion about it? Have they tabled resolutions about this, you know? And then defined it, not simply in terms of humanitarian assistance or in terms of NATO. And so how about the conservative? Are they asking a germane question? And what we have seen so far is that everybody has a pin on of the Ukrainian flag, you know, everybody is uh, is on board. And so it is left to the Canadian people to ask because the media is not asking the question. The narrative is on. Putin is the bad guy. He is the Hitler. He is the monster. Ukraine is a small country that has been invaded. Its sovereignty and its independence is under attack by a nuclear power country. And the rest of the world must clamber on board to push back Russia to defend Ukraine and so on and so forth. All sorts of questions can be asked. Why have we run headlong into Ukraine when what we are according to the Prime Minister, we are defending in Ukraine freedom and independence, was exactly what was being denied to the Canadian people only a few months ago. How do we square all of this? But on the fundamental side, what is the basis of Canadian foreign policy? Yeah, that's why I was suggesting that uh, under that second condition I mentioned that the freer nations have every right to invade a, a dictatorship. We have a right, a moral right to invade communist China today if we so uh, chose. Of course, that is not in our national best interest. And we would not do that. We would be crushed. So 
I would never thought myself growing up that I would ever take a side opposed to Europe or the Anglosphere or NATO and question our involvement in a proxy war with Russia. I always thought that we were on the good side. But the events of the last two years, the quashing of all of our rights, all of our individual rights, which today are still quashed, I can't move. Millions of Canadians can't get on a plane, train, or boat because of a medical decision they chose. And that is a complete violation of our individual rights. So I have no allegiance to this government. I have no allegiance to NATO. I have no allegiance to the Anglosphere or Europe, as long as we continue to act as an authoritarian dictatorship, which we are. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And the following voices you are about to hear are those of Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson in discussion with Hungarian-born Thomas Androvic, who shared some of his direct experience and insights regarding Ukraine from his current home in British Columbia back on April 11. Hello, Thomas. How are you? You want to talk about Ukraine today. You've got some very interesting information. Give us a little bit of background. This is much bigger than just going around and saying, well, Putin is living in the past and he wants to reinstate the old Soviet Union and reinstate its territory and its territory integrity of the uh, Soviet Union has absolutely nothing to do with that. It's much more complicated than that. What might we be missing? What do you think are other aspects or other facts that we need to take into consideration with what Putin's doing? Because, you know, the, the main thing is they're saying Putin's lost his mind, that he's crazy and all of that. Then I also hear some things that give me pause to wonder um, when, you know, he's not falling into sort of a globalist agenda like the Build Back Better buddies. Um, he does be somebody who's marching to the beat of a different drummer and he's a nationalist. But give us some insight into, you know, maybe some other things that we need to consider. So we have to take a look back then 30 years, back to 1991, and we have to look back at uh, Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union. Russia, when it became Russia proper, they actually asked NATO. They came to agreement that they might actually have a coexisting partnership between NATO and Russia. However, this quickly uh, fell apart. The West has never actually made full-fledged steps and approaches to embrace uh, Russia and and be able to take them on as full-fledged partners. And by NATO taking these steps have, have actually... Uh, made this worse. They have actually uh, encroached upon, and, f- and Russia feels that their sovereignty and their integrity is being uh, questioned, and that's one of the reasons why they have they feel like they have their backs to the wall. I bet if you go around, Robert, and ask people, I don't think one out of ten people will know or understand or have given it a thought. That how is it? that we are not sensitive to the reality of Moscow and whoever is Moscow's leader in terms of their frontiers and the threats that they face as we 
are situated in a similar situation between Russia, former Soviet Union, and America. And that crisis came home into Canadian politics. And I think people have forgotten that. Our leaders have forgotten that. Our teachers and educators have forgotten that. And our media, of course, you know, is a proper propaganda arm of the elite and they won't talk about it. We became, without any effort on our part or taking any position on our part, simply by the fact of the geographical situation, once the world entered the nuclear age with intercontinental missile, when the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik in the air in 1958, in 1949, NATO was signed and Canada joined it. But that was a situation on the European continent with Europe divided. On one side, the Warsaw Pact country led by the Soviet army. On the other side, the allied forces, Britain, uh, France uh, and, and the United States, which was rapidly converted into NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Salim, let me stop you there. By the way, I mean, I fully support that at that time. That was a necessary thing. The Soviet Union was an existential threat to the security of the world. So NATO's beginning, its birth, was quite legitimate, and I supported it fully. You know, I was in the Canadian military, I was training. You know, with the threat of something happening with the Soviet Union, we were we were doing exercises geared to being flown over to Norway to defend Norway, even though we knew that the war would probably be over a couple of weeks with two nuclear powers going together. So NATO as a concept is valid up to the point of 1991 and the fall of the Soviet Union. After that, there was no discussion about... Um, its validity anymore as a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. All, all they thought about was, oh, quick, let's gobble up those Eastern former Warsaw Pact countries in case the Soviet Union, which was now dissolved by its own weight, attempts to threaten Poland again or Lithuania or Estonia or, you know, it, it didn't make any sense in that context. So I don't want to come across as being pro-Russian, or anti-Canadian or anti-NATO, I think that we have to learn to put things into context and to discuss things as they are happening on the ground and whether or not we need a foreign policy that reflects Canada's interests as, as a relatively peaceful nation in the world. Absolutely. But you see, that's where nation states, a nation state that become due to economics, technology, science, and so on and so forth, and of course, natural resources, more than a nation state, they become regional powers, right? Canada is not in that sense a regional power, though we might pretend to be one, and that's why some people want to be make Canada a regional power. But we talked about Canada as a middle power. United States is the superpower. But the United States became a superpower after World War II, in the sense, you know, nuclear power, military power, of course, resources, its economy expanded, and so on and so forth. So powers, that is nation state that are powers, and even a middle power like ours, at which we, what we defined ourselves in the middle half of the 20th century after World War II, they have to lay out a statement 
a conceptual statement, a doctrine of what it is that they stand for and they defend. Because the United States as a superpower after 1945 turned its back upon the history of the United States yes, prior to World War II, prior to World War One. That is the debate that we are back to again in America, you know, which began with uh, the election of President Trump in 2016. America first. Your opening remarks was Canada first. What does America first mean? What would Canada first mean? It would mean, if it has any credibility, credibility, it would mean that this is the way we see our national security interests, and this is the way we define a foreign policy position in the world. So we would then be laying down, in some ways, red lines for our own security, that if you cross this line, if you do such and such thing, then you are aggressing upon our national interest, and we will have every right to defend it. Well, one is a very clear red line for any country that you cross their internet, their frontier, you know, and so that's an invasion, you know. But every invasion, you might say, or people might say, historically looking at it, is not an invasion, it is part of the war that erupts, you know, for other reasons and so on and so forth. So there was, and there is, a necessity to define our national security position. Because until 1945, we followed the mother country. Whatever the mother country's national security interest was, we responded to that with our resources, both in term terms of blood and treasure. But what was our mother country's national interest? It has been written about extensively, but let me just quote to you, paraphrase them, because I'm recalling from my memory, of the two great prime ministers of England, one from the middle of the 19th century, Lord Palmerston, uh, who was a prime minister under Queen Victoria. And the gist of the long speech that uh, on, a, on this particular occasion that Palmerston made in the House of Commons in, in the multiplicity of wars that of, of Britain has fought. The gist of his speech was that nations have no permanent and eternal enemies or permanent and eternal friends. Nations have permanent interests, okay? And so that interest can change from time to time, but in the generic sense that there are those interests and a nation state, in this case, Britain, power will go to war. That was about a century later, less than a century later, before World War II, Churchill, who was then not a prime minister, he pointed out that Britain for centuries has had one clear policy, and that policy was to take the side of the weaker power in Europe against the stronger power in Europe. In other words, Britain has always moved to war whenever it has seen that one power might come to dominate Europe. So Britain is the balance of power holder. Britain fought against Spain, made alliance with France. 
during the time of Elizabeth I and after, you know, the Spanish Armada and so on and so forth. Britain fought against France, the Napoleonic War, by making alliance with Prussia, Germany. Then Britain made alliance with France against Germany and so on and so forth. So the, the national security doctrine of Britain, as Churchill defined it, has always been in the sense of Britain is a part of Europe, but Britain is not of Europe. Britain is an island and it holds a balance and it will always move. And so that's the Anglo-American alliance of Britain, you know. So in 1945, the war ends, Britain is no longer the British Empire and it is the rise of America. America becomes the global power, but the shift does not register in the minds of our political leaders, particularly with the Conservative Party, with John Diefenbaker, and this crisis was played out because with the rise of nuclear weapons and the coming of the intercontinental ballistic missile, Canada was in the middle of whatever would be the flight pattern of these missiles between the United States and Soviet Union. The point is, with a crisis that is no longer in the memory of Canadian people, nor its political ruling class, Canada as a buffer state had to meet the demands of its ally. If Canada did not meet it, we don't know what would be the, the results. But can you imagine, can any Canadian imagine the Canadian territory being used by a hostile power to America? That's, what, that's not about to happen. The Americans would rapidly move in. So we went from under the British umbrella into the American umbrella. I'm sorry, uh, could it be that we do have a foreign policy with regards to war and that has been explicitly outlined as you've shown with the um, Foreign Affairs, um, Global Affairs Office there's statement that our national interests are whatever the United Nations says that they are. And I'm taking that the map that you gave of those nations who are actively involved in the Ukraine conflict and on the side of Ukraine matches almost to a state or a nation, the um, object of the globalist agenda, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, that we've talked about before, where you have mass migration from the global south to the global north and from the global um, east to the global west. We, those nations you've shown that are on the side of Ukraine, also happen to be the brunt of the globalist agenda and the nation states that are committing suicide by pushing the globalist agenda. So could it be said that Canada's national interests don't exist outside of the interests of globalism? Is Absolutely. That we have been living in a haze, in a fog. That is, we went from the British umbrella after 1945, and we went under the American umbrella. But then something else has evolved after 1991, which is the American empire, the globalism, the liberal-based order, rule-based order. And in that context, Canada has drifted, that is the ruling class, the Laurentian elite, the, the political parties that are the mouthpieces and organs of the Laurentian elite, both the liberal, the conservative, and the NDP, in effect. Uh, and we can throw in the, the green and all of these others. They're all within that 
consensus of the Laurentian elite that we have now drifted even further in terms of that globalism. We've heard uh, President Putin say that, you know, they wants to denazify the Ukraine. And unfortunately, the Azov exists. It's a neo-Nazi sort of military style faction within the Ukraine. It's actually part of the military. So you do have these neo-Nazi, neo-fascist groups going around and then enforcing them by threatening, by intimidating. And they do exist. And that's exactly what President Putin has said, that he wants to denazify the Ukraine. This is one aspect of what his idea of his this military action is to accomplish. Unfortunately, in the recent past, when both Minister Freeland and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau were in the Ukraine, they actually met with these neo-Nazi leaders. It's on tape. It's on camera. Wow. Uh, now, did they Does know that come it was out in mainstream media when something like that happens? Because Lord knows, uh, you know, apparently anyone who drives in a freedom convoy, you know, is some kind of Nazi. So it's recorded because we have pictures of it. Unfortunately, it's we live in a country at the moment that is without consequence, at least for a certain group. Uh, when Christia Freeland was seen in Toronto at a pro-Ukraine rally, she was seen holding one of those uh, Slava Ukraina scarves, which is a neo-Nazi scarf. So we've seen that. We've seen the these pictures. We've seen their actions. Unfortunately, there are no consequences to their actions. That's the type of country that we have become. We've all heard of that we have a problem with integrity, that there's a lot of criminality, that there's some really bad things that have gone on in the Ukraine, including what's coming out through Hunter Biden's laptop. What effect do you think all of this being exposed is going to have on the story as it goes? Well, this is why they are uh, fighting tooth and nail. This is why they don't want all this information coming out. This is why, unfortunately, we have not heard a single word about peace. And that should really really scare us and we're not willing to listen to the other person's side and perspective that is arrogancy and that will lead to our downfall and failure the other thing that should be very disconcerting is the fact that president Zelensky of the ukraine we've seen him make appearances all over the world and then every time he speaks and every time he opens his mouth mr Zelensky, all he does is demand he demands military help weapons not once has Mr. Zelensky said he needs help to forge peace. Not once. A leader needs to say, what can I do at all costs to guarantee the peace and security of my people? That's what he should be looking for. No, he has not once mentioned that. And that should be extremely disconcerting. And, and why has he not? What What is... Why would he not be doing that? Can you explain that again? Because because of what his country holds as uh, evidence towards other criminality and criminal activity throughout the decades. So in that context, we have no foreign policy doctrine. We have a doctrine 
which is not for the people, but which is for the ruling class. Just as Mr. Biden said, oh my God, this man has to go in Warsaw, or as Lloyd Austin says, you know, we're going to reduce Russia basically to nothing that they can do to impede our agenda, which is a liberal rule-based order. There you have it. So this is the proxy war. If you're not going to agree with us, we're going to bring about a regime change, a color revolution. The Americans can define now who are the good guys and the bad guys without any reference to history. And so in Ukraine, we are arming, as per the American demand, with the Americans, we are arming the Nazis, the real Nazis, not fake Nazis. We are arming the real Nazis. We have armed the real Nazis. We have contributed to them. We have sent our men in disguise into Ukraine before the shooting started. We didn't pull them out. People are not being told what is happening. We now know the senior NATO officers have been brought out of Azov Steel in Mariupol which has fallen to the Russian forces on the Donbass region. And Azov Steel, the huge complex, people who were in there, the Azov Battalion, the Ukrainian forces, along with a number of foreign mercenaries, including Canadian, and some senior officers from NATO countries have been rounded up and are now being held in custody according to what we are hearing, but not through the mainstream media. It is coming through European sources or through Russian sources. Or, for instance, a three-star general, Canadian Lieutenant General Trevor John Cadu, has been picked up, is now being held as a prisoner of war. There is U.S. Admiral Eric Thor Olson, a U.S. Lieutenant General Roger Cloutier, a British Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel John Bailey, number of other NATO officers whose names have not been released yet. So what have they been doing there? They're belligerent. They have dragged their country into a war against Russia in support of a country that is infested with the Nazis who we fought under Prime Minister Mackenzie King in the Second World War at an immense cost. The rest of the world fought to defeat the Nazis. And here, you know, our Deputy Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, the American President, they're all lined up to support how brave and courageous these defenders are for the independence of Ukraine completely whitewashing their history, both past and present. So we are left to wonder what sort of a nation state, independent sovereign state we are. We sent 338 members to the parliament to represent us, the people, Canadians, from coast to coast to coast. And there is a pin drop silence on the fundamental questions which at least, whether we agreed with or we disagreed with, there were those Canadians of French background in World War I and World War II and Boer War. They said, no, this is not our war. We are not going to fight it. We are not going to join. 
and they had their representative in the parliament. They questioned it. That was their right. The government had to have an answer. And the answer was, at least during World War II, the famous answer of Prime Minister King. There would be conscription if necessary, but not necessarily conscription. In other words, Prime Minister Mackenzie King was not going to impose conscription on the French population of Quebec. Sounds like a perfect politician straddling the fence. Perfect politician straddling the fence or the perfect guy who understood the dilemma of the nation state or the country that we are. That you don't break it up if there are these fragile points, you know, in the body politics of the country. How do you keep it together? And the biggest stress that the country faces is a stress in a situation of war or going into war, you know. Of course, now the biggest stress alongside a physical war is the question of pandemics. And the Russians have disclosed that somewhere close to 30 biolabs were being funded by the Americans in Ukraine that Ukraine was, in an effect, a launching pad of bioweapons, apart from other weapons, that Ukraine was being made into a launching pad. Launching pad against whom? Against Russia. Perhaps even against Canadians. Precisely. Or Americans. Like, we cannot trust these people anymore. I mean, would anybody trust a Joe Biden? Would anybody trust a Jagmeet Singh or... Justin Trudeau? No, of course not. These people are psychopathic killers. And and so when they discover these um, illegal bioweapon gain-of-function labs in Ukraine, then you you have to hold up your hands and say, just hold on a minute here. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Maybe Justin Trudeau is right in a sense, unfortunately, that we are a post-national nation, post-national state that we are not a country anymore and that we are run by D- Davos man. And it, it does not look very good for us, you know, as Canadians anymore. And uh, I've taken down my Canadian flag in my driveway a few months ago, like, because it represents to me something that I can no longer have allegiance to. It's not my government. He's not my prime minister. Right. To the extent that we have still the privilege and the freedom to say so, you're right. Do we? The way we have moved, I mean, you know, what happened just a few months ago in Canada with the Freedom Convoy, the truckers, these are people like yourself, myself, our friends, common Canadian, trying to basically assert their fundamental rights, whether they will put on the mask, whether they will allow themselves to be vaccinated and then boosted with more vaccine, whether they can freely move in their own country or travel abroad. What we took as granted was no longer there. And therefore, the Freedom Truckers convoy came to Ottawa. And the prime minister, with no core values in a post-national state, did what Hillary Clinton did in 2016. Hillary Clinton called the voters for Trump the deplorables. The Prime Minister of Canada called the Freedom Convoy and those who support the terrorists. In effect, the nation states have already become 
particularly in the West, take the case of New Zealand, take the case of Australia, the intensity of the mandates and the closure that was put upon those people in Australia, in New Zealand, in the Anglosphere, you had it in, in Britain, you had it in, right, in Canada, New Zealand, Australia. What we are seeing, these are supposed to be, quote, unquote, the advanced countries of the world. But when the rubber hit the road in this period after 1991-92, the end of the Cold War, as unknown to the general population, the country was moved by the leadership, the ruling class, the 1% of the Davos man, what we find is they are no longer representing the people and the nation state, which is their platform of operation as ruthless cosmopolitans, as the global citizen, but they need to have a platform from where they can become the global citizen. So a Canadian, you know, platform, these platforms, which are the nation states, have been turned into gulags. We might be very comfortable gulags, but we are gulags. And nobody is asking that question. So unless the people begin to assert their right to ask this question, and then the logical consequence of asking this question is to lead to making decision which sort of political parties and leaders they're going to support in their election. When it happens, we will have this continuing conundrum that the people, and we're having an election right here in Ontario, the people will vote for the same group of the ruthless cosmopolitans who brought them into the situation where their fundamental rights were nullified, will vote for them again. This seems to be a conversation that will have no end. So but, why don't we leave it there as a point of discussion to perhaps continue on at another time, Salim. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your input. Always great. Thank you very much. So in closing, I have to ask that rhetorical question again. Is Canada a nation in its death throes or a nation yet to be born? Given that we've never truly been an independent, mature nation because of our history, we may still be in the process of our political birth as an independent nation, maybe not the one we expected. Or maybe Canada is a tragedy that will never reach its potential because its political parents are in the process of aborting their political child of freedom, or worse, that Canadians themselves are committing national suicide. And as Salim noted, Canadians just keep voting their tyrants into power. As it happens, June 2nd is Ontario's election day, and I'm not expecting any great upsets or surprises, but I could be wrong. We'll all know for sure by this time next week when you are invited to join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Uh, politicians are like children. You can't just give them what they want. It only encourages them. But um, let's be clear about this, Humphrey. The entire system hinges on you as Cabinet Secretary controlling the PM and on me as Permanent Secretary of the Treasury controlling the Chancellor. Right? Right. And on both of us keeping an agreeable tension between them. 
mistrust, hostility. Yes, mind you, I think they'd manage that all right even without us. <laughs> the Chancellor will never forgive the Prime Minister for beating him to number 10. And the Prime Minister will never trust the Chancellor. After all, one never trusts anyone that one has deceived. Perhaps not. <laughs>